invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our study in the letters to the seven churches, Revelation chapter 2. just want to encourage you again to come on out this Friday night for our Good Friday service. It's great fellowship with the other churches from the Presbytery. just want to also encourage us to be good hosts. Um, we'll probably be having the craft room open for uh, overflow seating. If you could keep an eye on sort of the crowd, be willing to pitch in, maybe be willing to, to sit in there if it looks like we're going to need to use that. We might have a lot of folks here. And let's, just, uh, let's be uh, great hosts for our uh, sister churches in the Presbytery. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking now at the fourth letter that Jesus is uh, speaking to the churches, and uh, this is the letter to the church in Thyatira. Let's give our attention to God's word. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end... To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, Lord Jesus, now give us ears to hear. For you do have a word for us in our day, our place and time. I pray, Lord God, that we would, um, we would hear the warnings. We would, uh, we would hear the invitations to repent. We would hear the encouragements to persevere. And that these words would mold us this morning. For they come from your mouth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past fall, I read a, a very sad a sobering article written by a man named Dan Winarski. And I'm reading this not to throw uh, anyone under the bus. I'm reading this to show uh, the pressure that the church today faces. He writes, on Thursday evening, November 8, I attended a, an event at Sherman Street Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The event was hosted by All One Body, acronym A1B. A1B is an organized, highly motivated group of CRC members, pastors, and office bearers whose stated goal is to transform the CRC into a denomination that fully accepts and celebrates the values of the LGBTQ plus movement. 
A1B wants the CRC to normalize and celebrate homosexual activity, bisexual activity, and transgender identity in a fully inclusive environment. One of the speakers made an assertion that I'm disappointed to say I agree with. He stated that the current crop of young people in society at large and in the CRC in general are completely on board with the idea that homosexual behavior is something to celebrate. He stated that it is merely a matter of time until the defenses of the CRC and other denominations like her crumble against the persistent battery of the LGBTQ plus movement. Uh, the group discussed how it was not going to be helpful probably to uh, argue scripture to, to make their way forward. Uh, the, the group expressed that they were not hopeful. The CRC is working on a, a position a statement uh, for 2021, I believe. Uh, the group was not hopeful that that would be helpful to their cause. I'm thankful for that. Uh, but they, they encouraged the telling of stories, that stories are compelling uh, stories of uh, real people who are struggling with these, uh, these issues or not struggling, who are celebrating them and yet living happy, uh, fruitful Christian lives, and that those stories would be uh, all that would be required to, uh, to move this forward. Uh, as you may know, the Reformed Church in America is a little farther down the road. Uh, they do not yet ordain homosexual clergy, but they allow them to serve if they were ordained in another denomination. These are churches, uh, denominations that I grew up in and with. Uh, in Coopersville, Michigan, the CRC and the RCA were very, very theologically in, uh, in, in, in step. In other news, a Gallup poll published this past summer finds that 22% of people who said that religion was very important to them believe that pornography is morally acceptable. So this isn't the number of people who are using pornography or struggling with pornography. This is one in four people in our country. So this would be people who say that the Christian religion is very important to them. Nearly one in four believe that viewing pornography is not sin. That God has no problem with it. And as you might guess, those numbers climb every year. That is what a culture and pressure from a society will do to a church. As things that once were completely unacceptable, completely outside the pale of, of uh, what God allows, now suddenly seem reasonable and even morally acceptable or even things to celebrate. This morning we come to the fourth letter of, uh, of Jesus' letters to the churches. And remember, all these letters are for all the church. They're all for Harvest Church. And uh, of all the letters, this one seems, it just strikes me as maybe the most relevant for uh, where we are in our day. Uh, the temptations these believers face, the failures that they experience, seems very 21st century. Uh, their struggles are our struggles and the solution that Jesus offers is absolutely the solution that the church uh, desperately needs and needs to hear. This morning we're going to begin by just noting that Thyatira, the church in Thyatira was a good church. It's a very good church. Uh, they clearly love Jesus. They're devoted to his cause. The surprise in the text is that this very good church seems unaware that there was something in their midst that Jesus hates. Something that Jesus tells them must be changed or there will be discipline, there will be judgment. Uh, what would that something be? 
And what does Jesus require them to do about it? And, and what if they don't do anything about it? And what if they do? Well, let's look a little closer at this good church. Jesus has words of praise for them. Uh, this is a city um, in a, not really, a, it's not a significant it's a church in, an, in a sort of insignificant city. I mean, Thyatira matters. It's at a crossroads. It's not a political center. It's not New York. It's not sophisticated. It's much more a working man's town. Think Detroit, Chicago. It's the home of many trades. So you got the Baker's Guild and the Bronze Workers, the Clothiers, the Cobblers, Weavers, Tanners, Dyers, Potters. If you remember Th- uh, Lydia, she was a dealer in purple dye. She was from Thyatira. Read about her in Acts chapter 16. She became a Christian when she went there on a business trip to Philippi. She meets Paul, hears the gospel, and is converted. Is most likely a charter member of the church in Thyatira. It's a, t- it's, a, it's a town full of these trades, full of guilds. And as, if you remember from last week, that's where the temptation comes. Because the guilds all have their patron gods and goddesses. And the guilds would celebrate these patron gods and goddesses with feasts. Feasts which would involve eating meat sacrificed to the idol. Feasts which would involve sexual immorality. It was part of the worship service. And the reason you see these these feasts are a difficulty for the church is that if you're a member of the guild, you're required to be there. Otherwise, you would be a member of the guild who is actively offending the, the patron god or goddess. And your intolerance is going to hurt everyone. And so you can either participate or you can be excluded from the guild, which is going to have very real, dire economic consequences, much less the public scorn that you're going to face. And so the social pressure to to participate in Thyatira is is incredible. It's very high. But Jesus has words of praise for this church. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed, exceed the first. These are, these are high marks. Uh, Jesus loves this church. It is a healthy church. Uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit here are fruits that only the Spirit can produce. Love, which is a sincere love for Christ and for one another. Faith, they have a deep, biblically informed confidence in Christ. They know the faith. A service, that faith is producing Evident works of love and kindness as they serve each other. Patient endurance. They've shown the ability to withstand pressure and to, and to uh, endure persecution. It's a, it's a thriving congregation. And it's growing in spiritual maturity. Jesus says your latter works exceed the first. It's exactly what you expect to see in a healthy plant, right? Uh, the little plants that are coming up out of the ground now. Uh, they're, they're going to look different in a, a month and two months from now. They're gonna, because as they grow, they change and they, and they bear fruit. It's exactly what happens. It should happen in the church, will happen in a healthy church. I'm thankful that harvest does not look the same as it did 20 years ago or 10 years ago. We're not the same church. We shouldn't be the same church. Not if the Holy Spirit's at work. Not if we're growing in spiritual maturity, growing in likeness to Christ. Paul writes of the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love every one of you has for one another is increasing. 
Paul loves to see growth and change and fruit, and uh, we should delight in the same thing. We should expect that harvest, hopefully, 10 years from now, doesn't look like this. Greater spiritual maturity, we should expect, right? Greater likeness to Christ, greater love, deeper faith, more service, more engagement with our community. Should look different if the Holy Spirit is continuing to work in us, if we're a healthy, growing organism. And so here you have this healthy, growing, vibrant, God-glorifying, fruit-bearing church in Thyatira. There's so much to celebrate in Thyatira. But there's a disease in the garden. There's a blight among the plants, and Jesus points it out to them. I have this against you. Verse 20. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus charges this church with tolerating a woman called Jezebel. Now, undoubtedly, that's not her real name. It's not the name her parents gave to her, but it's her true name. It's the name Jesus gives to her because it's a name that reveals her true identity. And it's taken from an infamous character in the Old Testament. You can read about it in 1 Kings 16 and following. Jezebel was the wife, the wicked wife of King Ahab, the king of Israel. So uh, Jezebel was the daughter of a pagan priest. And she brought the sexual immorality and pagan practices of her home into Israel. This is the Jezebel that the prophets are facing, right? When you have this great showdown on Mount Carmel uh, with, the, with the prophets of Baal. That's that Jezebel. And, and the Jezebel here of Thyatira is doing just what the Old Testament Jezebel was doing. She's teaching, Jesus says, teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. She's teaching the church there to accommodate to the culture in which they live. And she calls herself a prophetess. She, uh, she assures her followers that her teaching is biblical, that this is approved by God, that this is what God wants. And if you listen to the language of those who are trying to uh, change the um, historic biblical teaching of the church when it comes to sexual, uh, sexuality, of course they're going to say this is what God wants for us to be loving and inclusive. Now, does God want us to be loving? Absolutely. But uh, the, the appeal is always, you see, to, that this is what God desires, um, now, the question is, how did Jezebel manage to have such an impact on such a good church? Right? We would think that a church like this would be insulated, would not be in danger. How, how does a good church like this um, tolerate this person? Well, two reasons. One, the new teaching is always appealing and the teachers are always convincing. A false teachers who can't teach don't have a long career. But when they can teach, when they have an ability to gain a crowd, right, that's when they do their damage. And the new teaching is always appealing. It's always attractive, particularly if it eases the stress of pressure from the culture, from the world, the society. If you think about uh, Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, the emergent church movement of 10, 15 years ago. 
That was a direct response to the postmodern pressure the church was feeling. How can we, how, how, how can we tell a postmodern world where people see truth as relative and shifting and there's no boundaries, there's no clear-cut in-out doctrines? Right? That, this doesn't appeal to postmodern people. So if we're going to reach postmodern people, we, need to, we just need to get rid of that language. We need to reimagine Christianity along postmodern lines. Now, how do, you get, how do you get people flocking to hear that? Well, it makes sense to postmoderns. So it's the kind of Christianity they would, they would, they would like to, to hear. Uh, where, where you get to sort of reimagine it as you go along. So that's, that's why it makes, it makes sense to a postmodern world, and that's why it made such an impact. Well, you have the same thing with the churches struggling now with issues related to sexuality. You see, wherever the world, the church faces the scorn of the world and the pressure of the world, the world thinks, just in case you're wondering, the world thinks that the traditional Christian biblical position on homosexuality and surrounding issues is, they believe it's hateful, they believe it's intolerant, they believe it's wicked, it's immoral, it's mean. And if you doubt that, just try to have a conversation at work about these issues. And so whenever the church, you see, faces the scorn of the world and the cost of true discipleship, there will be teachers promising a better, enlightened, more in spiritually insightful, connected, engaged path of cultural accommodation as a moral cause. Think about Jezebel. Why would you teach people that it's okay to engage in the sexual immorality of, the, of these festivals and, the, and, the, uh, and, and eating the meat. Why would she think that's okay? Well, she would, she would probably argue something like this. How in the world are we going to attract people if we're all broken out of work? If we're just going to be continually scorned? We need to show that we're not against these people. We're with them. We're for them. And doesn't grace cover all of this? I mean, don't you, understand, don't you read your Bibles? So if it's sin to eat meat, it's sin for a good cause. If it's, and, and if you don't really believe in your, in your heart that it means anything, right? We understand idols aren't anything, so just eat the meat. You don't mean it. The sexual immorality, I mean, come on, people. That's just the world we live in. And grace covers a multitude of sins. And if we want to impact this world, don't you, don't you care about these lost citizens of Thyatira? You think they're going to want to come to your church when you just lost your job and you can't feed your kids and you just got kicked out of your home? Who's going to want to join that? If you care about the lost people of Thyatira, you will not shun them at their festivals. It's probably something along those lines. And she claims to be a prophetess. And she's convincing. And it makes sense to people. And they're being led astray. And so the first reason is that false teaching makes sense. False teaching is attractive. False teachers are convincing. The second reason that this teaching is having an impact in the church is because the church is failing to take a stance against it. And this is actually the sin that Jesus highlights. I have this against you. You, the church, 
tolerate that woman Jezebel. The church wasn't teaching the error of Jezebel. The church was tolerating the error of Jezebel. How were they tolerating it? They weren't taking action against it. They weren't speaking up against her. They weren't disciplining her. This is apparently a member of the church. And so the cancer is being allowed to spread in the body. A blight is being spread throughout God's garden. This is a loving church, a good church, but a church that lacks courage. They don't have the courage to discipline. Now, again, we don't want to just um, go, you know, tusk, tusk, uh, bad, naughty church. The, the sin of toleration is one of the easiest, I think, sins to understand. I, I totally understand why most churches today don't practice church discipline. It's time-consuming. Uh, it often exposes leaders to gossip, accusations, anger, lawsuits. It doesn't feel loving in our culture, right? In a, in a culture that values self-esteem and happy emotions, church discipline feels intrusive, it feels abusive, and people don't like it. I uh, was at the Shell station just down the road here this past week, and I'm standing by the counter, and the lady at the cashier was talking to a uh, a, a big police officer standing there. They were just kind of having friendly chatter. And she was complaining that they were short-staffed. They had let some people go. And the, the police officer says, well, why is that? And she said, because people don't like to do what they're told to do. People don't like rules. And the officer, with perfect irony, said, weird. <laughs> and I chuckled all the way back home. Weird. People don't like rules, even if they're Jesus' rules, right? Sinful nature doesn't like to be told what we can and can't do. And so there's a backlash to this concept. Nothing brings the elders here at Harvest Church more grief than church discipline. Uh, people will judge us for being too harsh. Um, for not doing it right. Uh, people will say, it, it, I don't think it's going to work. It's not going to, you know, it, it doesn't make, it doesn't breed good feelings in the, in the life of the person. And, and you know what this is like, right? If you've ever tried to uh, talk to someone about their sin, someone that you know, someone you love, and, and they've been gossiping or slandering or getting involved in something they shouldn't be involved in, and uh, you, so you went and you, and you, and you talk to them. And it took some courage, didn't it, to do that. And, and particularly if, if it went really poorly. And they got angry. And they, um, they judged you. Who are you? Maybe you've got a friend right now that you think you're, you know you should talk to, but you're afraid to. Why are you afraid? What are you afraid of? Well, you could probably list the things. Afraid of being condemned as judgmental. Afraid of hurting people's feelings. Afraid of losing a friend. Losing a relationship. Talking to people, even Christian people, about their sin is not generally fun or easy. And so the church in Thyatira maybe just decided it's not worth it. We've got, these are good people. Um, you know, these are hard things. 
And they just didn't have the courage. So where are we going to find the courage, you see? Where, where are we going to find the courage to have hard conversations about sin with people that we love? And the only way that's going to happen is if we have a clear view of Jesus. Juan Sanchez in his, in his um, commentary says, how do we overcome our fears? By believing, really believing, that it is better for our unrepentant brothers and sisters to fall under our rebuke and our discipline than to fall under the judgment of the risen king. We're going to have to realize this isn't just about us and them. There's another party involved. His name is Jesus. And he cares. And only as we have a view of King Jesus and an appropriate fear of King Jesus will we have the courage to address with love and humility and kindness but truth sin in the body. And so Jesus, notice in this text, gives this church a very clear view of who he is. As a holy judge. Verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira I write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. (coughs) Notice who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Turn in your Bible, if you would, quickly to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. One of the favorite psalms of the early church. A psalm that speaks of Jesus the Son. We're going to look at verse 7 and following. This is in the context of oppression. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. All right, pressure, persecution, um, resistance from the world. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember that we started this series by looking at the vision of Jesus in John chapter 1. Looking at the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus. Not your Sunday school Jesus. Right? Not just the, the really patient, quiet, demure uh, sort of man who, uh, who wouldn't hurt a fly. This is, this is Jesus in his glory. Jesus in his holy reality. Jesus who will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces. And this Jesus sees our sin. That's why uh, he says, uh, eyes of flaming fire. That's how he, he reminds the church in Thyatira. I have eyes of flaming fire. That means I see And feet of bronze, that means I do have the ability to crush things. Jesus sees and knows every sinful act, every sinful motive. Um, And that's a particularly relevant uh, reminder to Thyatira where most sexual uh, immorality is done in secret and dark. And Jesus says, well, I know all about the secret and dark places. I know your works, verse 19. I am he who searches minds and hearts, verse 23. That's just truth, folks. 
Jesus knows every website we've ever been to. He knows every sinful, secret, shameful thought, word, action, deed, motive, attitude. We are laid bare and exposed to Jesus. And so he knows about our sin, and he cares about our sin. He cares about the sin of this church. Notice what he will do, verse 22. Behold, pay attention. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. That means her spiritual children, the people, those who are listening to her and following her. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart and I, mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He's serious about sin in the church, his church. And he's willing to discipline his church. Remember, this is the Jesus who struck Ananias and Sapphira dead when they had the audacity to lie to Peter about how much money they were giving to the church. It's that Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that, that some of you have fallen asleep, some of you are sick, and some have fallen asleep. Some have died under the discipline of Jesus. So, you see, we just need to get, this is the holiness of Christ. He's deadly serious about sin. He abhors sin. And only a clear vision of him and a sufficient fear of King Jesus will give us, you see, then the ability to overcome fear of men and to recognize what the issues are. The issue is not, you see, if, if someone comes to me or if I go to someone else and talk about sin, the issue isn't uh, have feelings been wounded. It's not the issue. The issue is has truth been spoken? Has sin been named? Has repentance been called for? Is Jesus being acknowledged as Lord and King and as judge? So I've, I've told people, I know you're not happy with this. I hate that you're not happy with this. But I am more afraid of King Jesus than I'm afraid of you. Because I have to answer to King Jesus on the last day. And so do all the elders sitting around this table. We love you. Our hearts break for you. We see a sin in your life that we, that we are convinced on the basis of the word of God is a soul-destructive sin. We love you enough to call you to repentance. And if you chastise, I'm sorry. Jesus requires that we deal with sin. And Jesus requires then that we repent of sin, right? He commands repentance. And he's patient to that end. Notice the kindness of Jesus in this, right? He, he says to this woman, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. There's a wonderful patience in Christ. He, he desires that people would repent. Uh, for 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Romans, Paul says in Romans 2.4 that, that God is, um, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Jesus wants you to repent. Longs for you to repent. Longs for me to repent. 
takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he insists that we repent. The patience is not negligence. It's not uh, overlooking. Jesus says, I will strike her children dead unless they repent. It's a wonderful, clarifying reminder to all of us that there's one sin and only one sin that will bring you under the judgment of God. Lack of repentance. Any sin, right, that we commit, if we repent, the cross is sufficient for all those who repent. There's only one sin that will send you to hell. Lack of repentance. There's only one sin that moves church discipline forward. Lack of repentance. I think I've explained this to some, but I grew up, I think, believing that there's a category, there's a box of really bad sins, and if you commit one of those really bad sins, you're going to come under church discipline. It's not true. You can commit any kind of sin you can imagine. And if you repent, we will promise you the forgiveness and grace and love of God and walk with you as, as you're restored. If you don't repent, if I don't repent, then brothers who love you and who love me are going to say, I'm sorry, you're not getting it. We need to, we're going to do everything we can to help you understand the severity of unrepentance. So Jesus requires repentance. But, but, but notice the patience and kindness as he does so. This is wonderful good news, friends. We're all, we're all sinners, aren't we? We're guilty of grievous things. We all deserve to be condemned. But when we repent, Jesus promises forgiveness. This is the gospel. That if you repent, if you believe, you will be saved. This is the gospel that we have for ourselves and for the world. Secondly, he requires endurance. To, some of, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Just hold fast to what you have until I come. What do they have? They've got this. They've got the word of God. That's what they have. They've got apostolic teaching. Right? They've, got, they've got all the Old and New Testaments, all pointing to Jesus. They have the gospel. Jesus says, hold fast to this. Don't let any new teaching compromise or go against this. I don't care how accommodating, how attractive, how appealing, doesn't matter. Hold fast to this. Until I come, I'm coming again. Soon. So Jesus says, hold fast. And then he promises wonderful things to those who do. Verse 26, to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. Let's just note those two things. Notice what he's doing. Jesus is taking from Psalm 2, we just read it, the psalm that applies to him. Remember, breaking earthen pieces, right? Vessels into pieces and ruling with a rod of iron. Jesus takes what belongs to him and gives it to his church. That's the teaching of scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, the saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's 2 Timothy 2.11. If we endure, we will reign with Jesus. Now, we don't have a robust 
um, vision of what that will look like. It's hard for us to imagine. But I think we can imagine what it will feel like. It will feel like glory and honor. If you've ever been to a courthouse and, you, and, uh, and the judge comes in and they're, they're clothed in their, uh, their garb, their judge black robe, and, and, and the man says, right, all rise. Why? To show honor and respect to the judge. Well, Jesus is the mighty, eternal judge of heaven and earth. And we are going to be like him, reign with him. His glory and the honor that belongs to Jesus is going to be given to you. That's, a, that's a, just a fascinating thought. We're not very honorable people. At least, not most of the time. Or much of the time. But there's going to be power and authority given to us with no sin attached. That means you'd never, you'll never be tempted to misuse your power. You'll have honor with no taste of superiority. You, you, we are called to be royalty in heaven, princes and princesses. Robed in the glory and the honor of King Jesus forever. Angels submit to God's people in heaven. It, it, it really is mind-boggling. But best of all, I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Revelation 22, Jesus tells us. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is the morning star. Jesus is the morning star. Jesus promises Christian to give himself to you forever if you endure. That's the glory of heaven, isn't it? The lamb was all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Friends, Jesus is talking to us. He's not talking to somebody else. The church in America is facing incredible pressure to accommodate, and we are too. And if we think that false teaching or accommodation will never happen here because we're a good church, we're just deceiving ourselves. It happened in Thyatira. Many, many people will cave. Jesus promises that's true. Matthew 24. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a word from Jesus to us, a call to endure, hold fast, pay attention, know your Bible, teach it to your children, teach it as though it is the very word of God coming from the very mouth of God, teach it as though this is life itself, to know the word is to know Jesus Christ as we receive it in faith. That this is where we find the gospel. This is where we find the will of God, the character of God. This is where we find uh, what it looks like to live for the glory of God in this world. And as, you, as, you, as we live as we, and we hold fast to this, do not be surprised uh, if you receive derision from the world. Expect derision. But we hold to this, to what we have, and all that it commands, and all that it promises, all that it teaches, in the confident expectation that if we hold fast to this, by the power of, of Christ, by the working of the Spirit, that we can expect glory and honor 
from King Jesus when he comes again. And he's coming soon. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we're people who live comfortably in an increasingly pagan world. And I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, that your words to us today would make us take thought of where we have already accommodated in our, the way that we live in this world where we've made decisions to go along so that we're not counted odd, strange, inconvenienced in some way. Jesus, I pray that you would wake us up to the reality of your glory, your holiness, what you command, what you promise. And these things would change what we watch on television. These things would change how we engage in social media. These things will change the way we do our work, the way we do our marriage, the way we think about sexuality. And that, Lord, we would walk as holy people, people who know the Lord their God, people who believe that your word is true, people who are convinced that this world and all that is in it is passing away, but there is a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us, right here, ears to hear and to respond in faith and obedience. And all the glory goes to Jesus. Amen.